Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Doctors Who Create. We're really excited to have with us this month Dr. Yuan He, an attending physician with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Carabots Pediatric Care Center, a pediatric clinic serving patients in West Philly. Dr. He is also a postdoctoral research fellow in the National Clinician Scholars Program at the University of Pennsylvania and an affiliate trainee at the CHOP Policy Lab, where she examines racial disparities in the child welfare and juvenile justice systems and tries to understand how different systems can work together to advance health equity and support marginalized youth. We are really excited to have her with us today. So welcome to the show, Dr. He. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, to start, I'd just like to dive right in and ask you if you can just tell us a little bit about how you got here, about your journey to your current clinical and your research career. Absolutely. You know, I think probably like many physicians, um, I was really interested in idealistic ways of helping people and grew up in Arizona to two parents who are very involved in science um, and actually have a grandfather in China who was a surgeon and involved in medicine. And my parents at a young age had talked about how, oh, we think you and you could be a good doctor. And I rebelled against that stereotype and felt like that is such a common refrain for Asian, especially Chinese immigrant parents to tell somebody. And had initially thought I was going to go into a music career, um, had tried all these other things, but kept coming back to really enjoying talking to and getting to know people, and especially people from different backgrounds. And again, really just appreciated that medicine was this avenue to get to know and connect with people on a deeper level. Um, Spent a year in rural Honduras after college to again, spend some time thinking about if this was really the right career for me. It felt like a really big commitment to go down the medical school path without doing a little bit more soul searching and had the privilege of working with a nonprofit there called Shoulder to Shoulder, where we were living in rural Honduras for a year, working alongside um, Honduran nurses and physicians to provide primary care. And then I worked with volunteer physicians and nurses from the United States who would come and do public health work. And through that, I think one really appreciated all the people I met and found some really fantastic role models, especially family doctors and pediatricians who I felt like were my kind of people. But beyond that, saw in a very rural, less developed area that medicine was so intricately linked to infrastructure, politics, policy, You can't provide care or medicines if you don't have roads to deliver the the equipment and the medicines that you need and that all of that's related. And so I think that really started my interest in public health policy and thinking about medicine from a larger social and economic context. And so because of that, applied for a dual MD MPH program, um, went to medical school went into pediatrics because I love kids and I love thinking about the family and community context. And that has led to my career now as a pediatrician. What led you in particular to apply to the National Clinician Scholars Program? Yeah. So, you know, I think pediatrics really drew me in because of the focus on the community and and population level. So I went into pediatric training and specifically the urban health and advocacy track of the Boston Combined Residency Program, where our medical home was Boston Medical Center, one of the largest safety net hospitals. 
and through that receive, you know, specialized training and curriculum and thinking about larger systems issues. And following that, I was not sure, to be honest, where I wanted my career to go. I knew I wanted to work in systems, didn't really know which tools I wanted to use to do that, and found out about the National Clinician Scholars Program, formerly, you know, the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program through an alum of our residency program, and really appreciated the focus on developing change agents who are embedded in the health world at different part. So from academia to policy to health systems to administration. And it was this vision for change agents that were outside of the traditional academic clinician space. And I wanted that exposure to to see how other people used and learned to develop tools in their toolbox to create change. I really like that phrase that you use, change agents. Do you feel like it was easy or hard to pursue that kind of opportunity in medical school where we're sort of taught to go on this rigid path towards residency and maybe specializing that usually involves like clinical or academic research of some kind? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's pretty challenging in such a structured place like medicine to forge your own path. And it's certainly something that you have to feel pretty strongly about because there aren't a lot of built-in supports or even necessarily guides to get you there. I think from the moment you go into medical school, um, oftentimes you're already sorted into tracks of what you're interested in. There's a very clear like one-size-fits-all curriculum that I think is now changing, which is great. Um, And then you match into a residency program and then you get spit out as, as a as a doctor and as a clinician. And I think that is appealing for a lot of people and including myself and sometimes being able to provide structure and provide like the next steps of what you need to do. But along the way, if you realize that that's not what you want to do, it's sometimes hard to find role models of people who have gone different paths or even knowing what those paths are. And that takes some seeking out and so Everybody knows that after medical school, you match into residency and a lot of people then match into fellowship. And I didn't know about the NCSP except for the fact that somebody before me had just applied and gotten in and enjoyed it. And so it's kind of more dependent on word of mouth of finding other quote non-traditional people to help guide you and to help mentor you. And there aren't very clear like ERAS, NRMP, like this is how you do it, ways to do it. But I think what's been challenging and beneficial is that when you do find those people within your orbit or in a different orbit, they're people who tend to really want to help you because they recognize how hard it can be without somebody helping them along the way. I really like the idea of finding non-traditional people. And I wanted to ask you, do you feel like the people that you've seen in these spheres in policy realms? Are they similar? Are they different than people you find in clinics? Do you feel like you guys think differently or talk differently to one another? How was adapting to this culture of people who like to think a little non-traditionally in terms of approaching problems and research? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think at least in the clinical spaces that I've been in, 
I think we share a common language there, right? So you're really focused on the patients in front of you providing the best care. A lot of the chatter in the room is asking each other questions about what I should do here. How would you do this differently? And sometimes there are side conversations about other things you're interested in. And, and certainly people have talked to me about what my research interests are, but I wouldn't say that it feels like I'm all that different um, from people when I'm in the clinical space. But I think if you were to say, how do we think about our careers or our jobs, that's where things might be a little bit more different, right? There are people who appreciate the structure of like, I'm in clinic now, this is what I do at work. And then there's my home life. And I'm sure that that is somewhat different from people who decide to go into policy or medical education, the way they think about the bounds of their job, what their mission and purpose is. But I don't know that those are conversations that we would necessarily get into on an everyday level in clinic. I do think that there are certain areas and places where I've found it easier to find people who are more like-minded, right? So NCSP is certainly one of them because they self-select for people who want to be change agents and who want to think about things from a systems level. My residency program, Urban Health and Advocacy Track, was specifically geared towards people who are interested in health equity. And so we would get together and that's what we would talk about. Um, you know, how would you do this differently? How do you want to do this? What's the difference between grassroots and top-down change? And those aren't conversations that necessarily were being had throughout the residency, but because we were a group of people who self-selected, it was easier to find that. I really want to go a little bit into the way of thinking that you were describing. Having gone through medical school, it's a very specific regimented way of thinking where you look a lot into details and then over time you learn how to zoom out into a bigger picture. But what you're describing is thinking on an even larger level, on a systems level. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how do you approach systems level problems? And I know we didn't get too much into your research yet, but you talked a little bit about how childhood trauma can lead to entering the juvenile justice system. So how would you go about thinking about a problem like that using the frameworks that you now have? I think you're right that in medicine and in research, we often go really from large to small and you narrow in and become a content expert in a very specific area and get into the details. And I think for me, at least, public health and policy has been zooming out and thinking about where there is some interplay. And some of that has always been an interest of mine, I think, because of my work in Honduras. But some of that is informed by my public health training and thinking about what are the different levels of context that impact a person or a community in specific ways. For instance, I think one of my projects during my MPH was looking at affordable housing redevelopment and thinking about how can you impact residents. And what I appreciate about that was that by actually getting all of the community stakeholders involved, including people who lived in that area, the nearby school, the nearby um, housing authority, the church, you already had people bringing up this framework and creating this framework that you could work on. So, you know, not only where you live, but where you go to play, how you walk to school, how you walk to work, are the places actually built for you? And, and I think that was what drove some of my interest in built environment. And so I think thinking about the sociocultural context in everything. And, you know, now we've gone beyond social determinants of health to structural determinants of health, like racism, like 
politics and policies. And I think trying to think of everything through the lens of what are the different systems that are involved? Who are the people who are disproportionately impacted, whether disproportionately marginalized or disproportionately gaining benefit are kind of the questions that are constantly going through my head as I'm analyzing something, a, a question like a trauma to prison pipeline where kids who enter the foster care system have already faced so many traumas and have already been marginalized in so many ways are disproportionately children who are living in poverty and children of color. And then through this process are more likely to have compounding traumas, have increased interactions with carceral systems and are disproportionately more likely to enter the juvenile justice and subsequently the justice system. And so how do we use the same methods that we learned in medical school and break that big problem down into pieces? And what are the decision points at which you could potentially change the course of how those systems come together? And I think the benefit of being a doctor is that you can see the lived experience of a patient or a family and actually understand those pain points from a personal perspective, which is really powerful. And I think that there are a lot of people who think abstractly about systems, but don't know on a granular level what that impact looks like. But as doctors, we have a lot to learn from people in the social sciences, you know, anthropologists, sociologists, to understand at a larger systems level, how do we actually make those systems come together in a way that works better? How does healthcare do better to support these patients but also in a way that supports the child welfare system or in a way where they can actually talk with the schools better and how do we make sure they get the needs met, the social determinants of health in a way that's actually beneficial for them. So I'm not sure that it answers your question about like the best framework, but I think actually some of the things, the tools that we learn in medical school to, to understand from a patient's point of view can be some of the things that help drive where we decide to investigate further through research or policy because policymakers often don't see the impacts of whatever policies are written. We see those and how we are able to relay those back to the people who are making those decisions or how we're able to present the data in a way that they see how things should be done differently can be really powerful. Thank you for going into that. Whenever I was approached with a large problem like this, I would get overwhelmed and I would be like, how can I even begin to tackle an issue like affordable housing, like the school to prison pipeline. I don't even know where to start. I don't know who to talk to. And so when you say taking it from the position of the patient, which is what I guess we're taught to do, and then approaching it like, what are they experiencing in their daily life? What is in their built environment? And then tackling those issues one by one, because policymakers don't have that perspective. I think that really makes it concrete for me. It sounds like there isn't for example, the SOAP note or some sort of algorithm in thinking about and analyzing policy, but there is a way that you can still incorporate that th way of thinking. And that is by taking the patient perspective. I think that's something I've always wanted to do better and I haven't really learned how to do. I think we are so well-trained in taking a history and understanding the HPI and going through the SOAP note. And then I think in this, it's just taking it one step further and really listening to the patient's lived experience, right? And so kind of like you diagnose a medical problem in a patient, you're thinking about how do I diagnose and list the problems that are facing a community? And how do you actually listen to and leverage 
what you hear from people's lived experience to inform the next steps that you do? And, and how do you make sure that you are empowering that patient or community's voice as you do that so that it's not just you making decisions on behalf of your patient, which in this case is a larger community, but really trying to support them in whatever next steps that they might feel like is the best. That's great. Like making a consult for a whole community. That's a cool way of thinking about it. I was wondering if you could go a little bit more into what makes you passionate about research and health equity in particular and problems that you're tackling and what kind of analyses that you've thought about. I tend to be somebody who's interested in a lot of different things, um, which also can be difficult in medicine where, you know, you meet people who say that they have been interested in cardiology ever since they were 10 years old. And I've always been like interested in lots of different things. And I think a lot of it is informed by this idea of fairness or justice. And I think realizing that in whether volunteer or work or patient experiences, feeling like there are disparities or differences where I feel like there shouldn't be were areas that caught my attention more. And I don't know that I was using the term or phrase health equity until relatively recently. I think a lot of people would have called it health disparities research or focus until recently, but that's what drives a lot of my interest. And so I think in residency and now in fellowship, some of it was, okay, I know I'm interested in systems and specifically how different systems come together and intersect, right? So for child welfare, it's child welfare, juvenile justice, education, and health, how those different systems intersect and either don't or do work well together. And I became interested in housing, homelessness, and foster care, because I think those are two areas where people are so dependent on public systems to be not only working, but working well together. And where honestly, I think there's a lot of room to grow. And so I kind of picked on those two to focus on for now. I don't know that there'll be forever issues, but I think it's an interesting way to take a perspective of how can we, again, diagnose what's not working well and think of ways that it could be better. And so here in fellowship. I think the two areas have been within the child welfare system, we've seen that many, many more children and families are entering the child welfare system because of substance use and the drug epidemic. And so this is like a, such an oppressed and marginalized population that has so many mistrust and distrust issues with the healthcare community and the child welfare system for justified reasons. And so how can we expect to be able to support them and earn their trust when in a lot of ways we don't? And how do we design systems better so that we can A, forge that trust, but B, also support them in the way that they need? And so I think that has been one of the kind of driving factors for which research questions I'm asking. One other example is thinking about built environment and how so much of our daily lives are structured around what our built environment looks like and thinking about what are the neighborhood and community factors that impact the risk of getting involved with the child welfare system and entering it. And so one question I've been interested in asking together with Dr. South is like, are there both risk and resiliency factors that we could potentially modify at a community level that would support 
these marginalized groups and reduce the risk of child welfare involvement. So in one of my current projects, it's looking at how does access to green space like parks and trees actually impact the risk of being reported or substantiated, so like found for a child to be abused or neglected. Because if we can find an association there, that's actually something that we can offer as a solution, right? That's a policy that we could change. We could think about how we actually design parks and and plant trees in a way that can improve people's lives. And we can do it in a thoughtful way that centers equity to focus on groups that have historically been more disenfranchised. That's a really cool project. And I feel like I've just started to hear more about how important the built environment is. And I feel like it's becoming such a new and upcoming phrase that we really need to take it into account. So I think it's really great that you're doing work on something like that. And we talked a little bit about how, well, we talked a lot about how your thinking as a doctor can influence your thinking in policy. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the reverse. Do you feel like your work in policy has influenced the way that you practice medicine at all on an individual level for each patient? Absolutely. I think in a lot of different ways. I think the the first one that comes to mind is that at a policy level, and even doing research, you learn about policies the way they were designed and then the way they were intended, right? So for a patient who comes in with this problem, this is what you're supposed to do. And those are the questions that we often ask about. And those are ones we're taught to ask about. But then there are so many things going on in our patients' lives that we don't ask about. And especially for for my vantage point as a primary care doctor, you have 15 minutes to try to hit all the high points. And how do you even decide what to focus on, right? With so many problems facing families, like, do you focus on gun violence? Do you focus on substance use? Do you focus on poverty for families that you know are at risk of those things, in addition to all the well-child checks? And then for my interest in substance use and child welfare involvement, There are so many other things where I'm like, oh, this is a a policy or a program that's supposed to support these patients. And when I think of asking them and I have the time to ask them, many of them don't even know that they exist, right? And then I think it's sometimes hard to think about the number of people who are working to solve these problems and offer up these solutions that aren't even reaching the families that they were designed for. And so it's also thinking about like, how do we connect those dots and how do we bring these systems together in a way that doesn't rely on the really resourceful family who has the time and energy to like look up where these things are, look up how to get help for things. So I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think the second is what are the things outside of the clinic and hospital walls that we aren't thinking about that are occupying 75 to 90% of the brain space of our patients, right? We're asking about sleep and we're asking about nutrition. And now we're starting to do a better job about thinking about social determinants of health and screening, but doing a better job of asking at the outset, what are the things on your mind that are bothering you or preventing you from feeling like you can do the best for your child? And unfortunately, I think that that is often something we ask about more often in research questions and surveys um, than we do in the clinic. And it's hard to find time for it. And it's also hard to know what to do when you get answers that you don't have a solution for. But I think centering what is on our patients' minds can often go a long way to understanding what the problem is that needs to be addressed. 
Thank you for your answer to that. So I actually kind of want to go back to something that you talked about at the beginning. You talked about how you were raised with parents who were really interested in science. And I personally am also the child of Asian immigrants as well. Also, I rebelled against the idea of being a physician because my mom was a doctor and she told me not to be a physician either. She was like, you should try to do something different. And I was like, oh yeah, I will. And then ended up not doing that because I think similar to you, the human element of being in medicine was very attractive. But a lot of what my parents had in mind for me was pursuing a path of entering a specialty, maybe doing some research on the side. Things like policy and talking about politics and systems issues were never really in, I guess, my own cultural upbringing or language growing up. So I was wondering if for you, this had an influence on your own career path or the way that you perceive yourself in your career and your research. Yeah, it's a big question. I think it certainly did. And I um, have thought about this a lot because I do feel like at least the Asian stereotype on some level is you find a secure job or career that can provide financial stability, allow you to to do well in life, earn a good income, and not have to worry. And I have conversations with some family members even now who are like, you want to work in public health? You did all this training to become a doctor and you want to earn less money to do public health when you could actually just see patients all the time and actually earn more, right? And I think there is a cultural component. I think similar to how we talked about earlier, where there's a cultural component of people who enter medicine and like this structure and hierarchy. And I think some of that is similar to at least my experience with Chinese immigrants. I think that our family maybe was a little bit different. I think it's always hard to know how your family compares to others. This is the experience that I have. And I was incredibly privileged to have two parents who are both scientists, who are professors, and were able to provide a very stable and, again, privileged life growing up. And I think we did talk about this at the dinner table. And I'm learning as I grow older that that wasn't always true for families that looked like ours. My mom was involved in specifically mentoring students from underrepresented groups. And we would talk about affirmative action and what that looked like and the advantages and disadvantages. And I can tell you the differences in politics, even between my parents, which now reflecting back on it, I think is probably atypical. And I think being able to hear that and see that you can think about these on a big systems level and you can have discussions and disagreements about that in a way that's thoughtful and really informed, I think, the directions that both my brother and I went. I think we both have been interested in positive change on a systems level. My brother does work in climate change and environmental consulting. And and so I, I think that has to play a part. And so I think we were very fortunate and privileged to be able to experience that. And it's made me mindful as a new parent of how we foster that kind of environment to for our child and how we push those conversations with friends and with families in a way that is thoughtful and intentional. Yeah, that was really great. Thank you. 
I appreciate your time and I really enjoyed speaking with you about all of this. If our listeners want to get in touch with you somehow, is there Twitter or any social media account? Yes, my Twitter account is, well, I say Yuan He, um, but you actually said my name the right way um, in Mandarin. So Yuan He MD, and that's a public account. But I would also say that, especially for medical students or anyone else who wants to connect, I think, as I said, it can be sometimes hard to find people who are interested in, you know, this line of work or systems thinking or out of the box thinking. And so people are always welcome to reach out to me via email as well. I have one of the shortest names in the world. And so my (laughs) CHOP account is T-Y or hey at CHOP.edu. And so if people want to reach out with questions or to connect, I'm happy to do that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Hu, for coming on the show. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much. The pleasure was mine. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review. We would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at doctorswhocreate at gmail.com. Or tweet us at doctorscreate. Or check out our website, doctorswhocreate.com, to listen to our podcast episodes and also to check out other articles and profiles of physicians who are creative. Intro music brought to you by the band Night Float.